And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to preach. And, Lord God, I pray that you would guard us from fear. Because, Lord God, you are terrifying. And yet you are always good. And so, Lord, may the walls of our heart come tumbling down and may you, the King of glory, ride in and claim what is your own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Josh fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. That uh, song is about uh, the first conquest, uh, the city of Jericho in the conquest of the promised land by the Israelites, Joshua chapter 6. On the seventh day, just like God had told them, they marched around Jericho seven times while the priests blew their horns. And just like God said, when they finished marching, the priests blew one long blast and then all the people yelled. That's the VeggieTales version of Joshua chapter 6. I used to watch it with my kids, and I like it because it's, it's cute. <laughs> Joshua chapter 6, verse 20, the walls come tumbling down. Joshua chapter 6, verse 21, then they devoted all in the city to destruction. Both men and women, young, old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. I have a good friend whose husband left the church some years ago. She told me one day my kids were singing that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho song and my husband just like flew off the handle. He won't let the kids even recite the story. He says it's genocide. You do realize uh, pictures of bodies Burning in the ovens of Auschwitz would be more historically accurate when representing the events in Jericho than talking vegetables, right? Cute talking vegetables. I mean, I mean we, need, we do need to be honest, I think. It was a holocaust. Holocaust from the Greek holocauston, meaning burnt whole. Webster's definition number one, a sacrifice consumed by fire, holocaust. 
And yet, to be even more fair, the folks that were in Jericho kind of had it coming, you know what I mean? They were Canaanites and Amorites. They were people that practiced such things as ritual prostitution, child sacrifice. They, they worshiped demons. You, you may never have encountered that sort of thing, but I have. I've encountered demonic spirits in numerous occasions manifesting in the, the flesh of, of persons. I've heard the stories. Susan, my wife, has even seen the pictures in, in visions that the Lord has given while praying for people uh, that have been ritually abused. When I first began to encounter that reality, I remember that I was just uh, overcome with anger, anger at, at, at God. When I began to realize how ingrained in the psychology and sociology of those groups the evil was, I, I grew angry at God and I had one question. Why didn't you just destroy them? With fire, your fire. Why was there no holocaust? I mean, if my friend's husband could witness the hell that was the inside of the city walls of Jericho, I bet he'd drop to his knees and beg God for a holocaust. The great question is, why didn't it happen sooner? And to that, there is a rather disturbing answer. Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, God tells Abraham that his seed would not return to Canaan, that's the promised land where Jericho is, until the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete, ripe. See what, see what that means? E even the sin of Jericho was part of God's plan. And that means that God actually set them up for a holocaust. And that gets us right back to my friend's husband's criticism. God not only commits holocausts, he sets it up. And if, and if we believe, if we believe, like, like most American Christians, I think, believe, that those people are now devoted to endless conscious torment, how can we even read the story? How can we even allow our kids to read the story or tell the story or have cartoons about the story? How can we tolerate the story? Maybe we can't. So we turn it into a story about cute talking vegetables. Why? Because it is so incredibly hard to avoid the idea that damning people to endless conscious torment appears to be infinitely more sadistic than anything that Hitler ever did. Because what did he do? We killed them, we chopped them up, gassed them, put them in the ovens, burned them, and it was over. But we've been told that God is into endless torture. Who would be into telling us such a thing? I mean, if I really believed such a thing, I might really struggle to love God. I mean, I would honor him with my lips, don't get me wrong, but my heart would be far from him. If you really believe such a thing, it might be kind of hard to love God, and it might be kind of hard to love your neighbor. And when Jesus said stuff like, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful, well, wouldn't it mean blessing a few people and endlessly tormenting other people for no fault of their own? 
like the people on the other side of the wall in Jericho, people who had never heard God saves in a word, Yeshua. Who would be interested in telling us such a thing? That God is that divided. Well, this is the point where most folks shut their minds, shut their hearts, shut their Bibles, and watch videos about cute talking vegetables. Secretly hoping that the Jesus stuff is true and the wrath stuff isn't true. Or if they're angry people, secretly hoping that the wrath stuff is kind of true, but God is on their side. Don't do that. Don't stop reading. Don't stop wrestling the word until he blesses you. Joshua 6 follows Joshua 5. And you know, the chapter divisions were added like 2,000 years later. It's one story. In Joshua 5, the nation of Israel has just crossed the Jordan River carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we just preached on the Ark of the Covenant for, for a month. The Ark of the Covenant, literally law covered in mercy. Well, this right, this right here is a, is a modern-day satellite picture of uh, Palestine. That's the, that's the Dead Sea. By the way, this is the lowest point on the face of the earth. Here's Jericho. Here's Jerusalem. I just got this off of Google Earth, okay? This is, this is like the promised land over here. Uh, the Israelites crossed the river somewhere around here where Jesus was baptized. And then they camped right here on the plains of Jericho before the city wall. In Joshua chapter five, God commands all of Israel to be circumcised right here. Be cut before they did any cutting. We preached on that too. And then he commands them to celebrate Passover, body broken and blood shed. I think we, we do that every week. Then verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man. A man was standing before him with his sword drawn, a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Are you on our side or are you on their side? Now you gotta understand that in that day, a, a drawn sword was like an assault rifle pointed at your face. And so the question, are you on our side or are you on their side, was a very obvious sort of question. Now, I got this sword from a friend. She said she was praying and God told her to, to give it to me. I hang it on the back of the cross when I preach. Uh, you don't need to see it. It's a prayer. It's a prayer that my word would be God word because, God's word because you see, um, uh, truth is, is the word of God. In fact, that's printed right here on the blade, truth. And, and the word of God is a sword. And hey, do you remember that there was a flaming sword at the east of Eden? Bible scholars like John Salehammer say that, well, that place where the Israelites crossed the river, that was that eastern side of Eden. Promised land, the holy land. Well, anyway, Joshua looks at this guy with a drawn sword and he asks the obvious question. 
Are you on our side or their side? Whose side are you on? Today's Palm Sunday. As, as Jesus rode into the walled city of Jerusalem, people were asking an obvious question. Whose side is he on? The crowd thought that they knew. King of Israel. And so they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. Now save us from the Romans. From the Romans. The other side. It's an election year. So it's an obvious question, isn't it? Whose side are you on? God. Save us, save us from Republicans. Save us from Democrats. Save us from the New York Jets. <laughs> Why? Well, because God is obviously on their side. This week, Pat Robertson said that if Peyton Manning was injured, quote, it would serve him right. Serve who? Us, Denver. It would serve Denver right. Yeah. Why? Because God is obviously on Tebow's side. <laughs> Terry Tyler sent this to me this uh, last week. Before Tebow was traded uh, to the Jets, Tebow prays, Jesus, help me win a Super Bowl. He sees Peyton Manning and says, what are you doing here? And Manning responds, Jesus called. <laughs> I love that. Now, that is not a commentary on Tim Tebow, okay? That's a commentary on us. Because we don't know what Tim Tebow is praying when he's Tebowing. He could be praying this. God bless my enemies. That's a wild thought. Because, you know, technically, Manning is now Tebow's enemy on the opposing team. And yet, both of them are Christians, Whose side is God on? Whose side is, is, is God on? He can't be on both sides and still be playing the game, right? So whose side is, is God on? Barack Obama's? Mitt Romney's? Rick Santorum's? They all claim to be Christians. They're all Americans. Is God on America's side? Hey, do you have one of these uh, bumper stickers? God bless America? Well, if you do, well, I think that's good. You should bless your country. And yet the Bible never says, bless your country. <laughs> do you know that? However, it is very specific about this. It says, bless those who persecute you. Romans, Romans 12. And right after Jesus says, love your enemies, in Luke 6, he says, bless those who curse you. <laughs> I mean, you've read it, right? I mean, he's very specific. And it's the imperative tense. It's, it's a commandment. So how come I've never seen a bumper sticker that says something like, God bless Afghanistan. God bless the Taliban. Why? Well, you know why. You put a bumper sticker like that on your car and you get shot. I mean, you'll get crucified. Because you can't be on their side and still be on our side, right? Would you put, would you put this on your car? 
I found a, a website this week that made bumper stickers uh, uh, to order, and so I made these and ordered 100. It says, God bless everybody. Now, if, if you saw that on somebody's car, what would you think? If I saw that on somebody's car and I wasn't preparing a sermon on the topic, this is what I'd think. <laughs> Stupid hippie. <laughs> uh, that, that's what I'd think. I think if, if, if you bless everybody, you're not even playing the game, right? I mean, you just try it, stupid. You just try to bless everybody and, and watch what happens. You get yourself crucified, you idiot. I asked the staff this week, what, what would happen if you put this bumper sticker on your car? All of them said, well, gosh, people would think I was a traitor. And then one of them, I think it was Justin, said, and, and this is... Interesting, I, I don't think it would be the people of this world, you know, like tax collectors and sinners, it would be Christians. Well, isn't that weird? I mean, I, I'm a Christian. Is God on my side? And if so, does that mean that God is not on the other side? You know, before you hate people, it helps to convince yourself God is not on their side, right? Uh, you know, the other side, the side of the last and the least. Well, well, anyway, Joshua 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. Worshiped as if this man is God. He's like, a, he's like a God man. And when Joshua asked him a simple question, are you on our side or their side? He answers, no. Okay. Should I pass the ball or run the ball? No! This guy reminds me of Jesus. Love your neighbor. And the lawyer asks him, uh, well, uh, who, who's my neighbor? And be Jesus, you know, he basically answers, no! And just like usual, doesn't answer the question, he tells a story. He tells a story about a man on the other side, a Samaritan and a Jew in a ditch. It's like the lawyer asks him, should I run the ball or pass the ball? And Jesus says, No! We're not even playing that game. Joshua asks, whose side are you on? And the God man says, no. I am the commander of the Lord's army. Now I have come. Now, we meet him now. We're commander. Who's the commander of the Lord's army? Who's the Lord of hosts? Who's the dread warrior? Who's the angel of Yahweh, messenger of Yahweh? Who's the, this God man that appears throughout the Old Testament because he's like fully God and fully man? Well, that can only be Jesus, right? Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Same. That means totally undivided. Jesus. And, and check this out. In Hebrew, the name Jesus is pronounced something like Yahshua or Yeshua or something like that. It's Joshua. 
So, Joshua is talking to Joshua, the real Joshua. The first Adam is talking to the last Adam. The old man is talking to the new man. When you talk to Jesus, to whom are you talking? You remember what Paul said, and I think he actually meant this? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That means that that old, hateful, resentful, genocidal Paul was destroyed. And now when Paul looked at Jesus, who did he see? Himself. His true self. His new self. His redeemed self. Well, anyway, the temporal Joshua says to the eternal Joshua, whose side are you on? And the answer is, no. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, I get it. It's like Abraham Lincoln said, you know what I mean? Pray not that God will be on our side. Pray that we will be on God's side. Uh, whose side are you leaning on? Leaning on the Lord's side. I lean. Does God have a side? Does God have a cause? Soren Kierkegaard wrote this, and, and it's fascinated me for years. I hear of those who talk about God's cause and about wanting to serve that cause. That is, th th this is all very fine, but how exactly is this to be interpreted? The common view thinks that God has a cause in the human sense of the word, that he is interested in having his cause win and therefore eager to help the person who would serve his cause. No, no, God has no cause in, in this sense. For God, everything is infinitely nothing. Any second he wills it, everything, including all opposition to his cause, become nothing. Wanting to serve God's cause can never mean the same thing as coming to his aid. No, to serve God's cause is to face examination. And Joshua lies prostrate before him. Kierkegaard continues, God is infinite love and for this reason, has no cause. Well, I mean, if God is all love and all powerful, if he is creator of everything and sustainer of everything, well then it would seem that God's side is the only side. And the other side is no side, nothing. But what a, what a horrific nothing. It is the adversary in Hebrew, the Satan in Hebrew, the Satan. You know, the Bible says that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. God is light, and what does light battle? The darkness, the absence of light. Darkness isn't a something, it's a nothing, a horrid nothing. What does life battle? The absence of life, death. What does truth battle? The absence of truth, lies. What does the way battle? The absence of the way, lostness. And Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, the light of this world. What does the word of God battle? The void into which he has spoken as creation. 
What does love battle? It's an interesting question. But we do know this. We, we do know that God is not on one side or the other side of that wall. And yet, look. The God-man is, is standing there with his sword drawn. He's battling something. What's he gonna attack? What's he gonna cut? What's he gonna tear down? Joshua asks, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the God-man says, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord, the army of Yahweh. I am that I am. I am that I am. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your shoes. Take them from your feet for the place that you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. Joshua says, commander, command me. And the commander says, okay, take off your shoes. That's silly, right? I mean, it is. This is a picture I got from Google Earth of the plain of uh, Jericho. I mean, it's hot rocks, sharp hot rocks, cactus, and, and camel poop. Take off, take off your shoes. This is preparation for war. Baptism in the Jordan. Circumcision before the city walls. And Passover. And now take off your shoes. Worship. And that's the end of Joshua chapter 5. <laughs> what happens next is far too big for any sermon. <laughs> that never stopped me. But anyway, it's far too big for, for any sermon. What happens next is literally the apocalypse. Last battle, or last book of the Bible, the revelation uh, of Jesus, and, and, and last, ba last battle, I, I, I wrote about the revelation of Jesus, wrote a book about it. You can get it um, at Amazon, or you can download it on our website or get it downstairs, Eternity Now or Apocalypse Now. But what happens next is that Yeshua, Joshua, and his army march on Jericho. Chapter six, verse one, it's a city entirely shut up inside and out. It's protected by walls or perhaps imprisoned in walls. Well, according to the Lord's command, they walk around the city six days, like the six days of creation, the days of time. On the seventh day, the Sabbath day, they walk around seven times. Hey, do you remember all the sevens in the book of the revelation, seven angels, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven bowls of wrath, and a walled city, remember that? The city is called Babylon, but it's also uh, very clearly Jerusalem, and some say Rome, it's the Tower of Babel, the institutions and cities, structures of this world. In the city, check this out, there's a great harlot, a prostitute. And God's people are in the prostitute, according to the Revelation. You in the Old Testament, God refers to Jerusalem as a prostitute? And his bride. Well, anyway, at the seventh seal, seventh trumpet, 
Uh, and uh, the, the seventh bull, bull of wrath, the city falls and the commander of the Lord's army appears on a white horse. And in his train, riding behind him, is the army of the Lord. He tramples the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And an angel standing in the sun calls to the birds saying, and I quote, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men. Revelation 19, verse 18, read it. The flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, wrote the Apostle Paul. All flesh gets eaten. And then check this out. A new Jerusalem comes down from God like a bride and the kings of the earth who just got their flesh eaten. <laughs> they ride into the city bringing their glory with them and a voice echoes from the throne. Behold, I make all things new. It is done. Listen closely. The revelation of Jesus is the siege of this earth by the kingdom of God. And it's happening now. Do you remember what Jesus said on Palm Sunday? In the book of John. On Palm Sunday, he lifted his voice before the crowds and he said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all people unto myself. Now I am the commander of the Lord's army. Now I have come. Do you remember why he was crucified? I don't, think, I don't think many people do. He, he rode in on Palm Sunday, right? And then shortly after that, you read the story, either later that day or the next day, he, he went to the temple and he like went into a rage. He, he went into a, a rage, tore apart the temple, and, and particularly he tore apart the court of the Gentiles, the court of the nations, because it was clogged with Jewish uh, merchants. And he was yelling something about sides and quoting Isaiah 56. My father's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, all people. Oh. That's all sides. Then he said something about walls and that they'd be tumbling down. And so they crucified him. The commander of the Lord's army, they crucified him. And then the walls, they really did come tumbling down. 
Anyway, I got off topic there. Back to our story. On the seventh day, the seventh time around, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the seven priests, like seven angels, blow the seven trumpets as the people shout, and the walls come tumbling down. Then following the instructions of the Lord, verse 21, then they devoted all the city, all in the city, to destruction, both men and women, young and old, ox and sheep, donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men uh, who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitutes house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. her her name is Rahab which by the way means dragon she was marked by the dragon she had hidden the spies with lies and check this out that means that even her good works were like filthy rags verse 24 and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord, the treasury. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, cursed before the Lord, be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho, at the cost of his firstborn, shall he lay its foundations. Devoted to destruction. In Hebrew, it's one word. Haram is the verb. Haram is the noun. It's translated in, in the ESV a, f- a few ways. These are just some of them. Decree of utter destruction, devoted, and net. All which tells you we no longer have a mental category for this, this word. Haram is to devote something exclusively to God. Haram is his consecrated possession. The Jews saw, saw harem every day in the temple. Sacrifices, cut, devoured by fire. Well, verse 17 tells us, Jericho and everything in it was harem, sacrifice. You know, Hitler tried to save Germans by sacrificing Jews. The Canaanites tried to save themselves by sacrificing their children. Maybe we try to save ourselves by sacrificing Arabs, Afghans, the poor, the weak, the unborn, the last, the the least, and it's evil. But not because it's sacrifice or even human sacrifice but because we sacrifice to the wrong God rather than to the true God who is love. Think about it. Love is a sacrifice. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, the love of God, writes Paul, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's a real devotion. Next time you say, I'm gonna go have a devotion, think about it. Jesus said, if you wanna follow me, pick up a cross. And you know, if we don't die with him, if we don't die for him, we still have to die 
I watched my dad die, and let me tell you, I'd much rather have an Israelite lance thrust in my heart than lung disease placed in my chest. Did you know that all nations, all peoples are harem? That's Isaiah 34, verses 4 through 7. Isaiah 43, 28, even Israel is harem. And that means Jerusalem is, is harem. And you know the story, in 70, this is history. In 70 AD, exactly one generation after Jesus prophesied its destruction within his generation, uh, her walls, the walls of Jerusalem come tumbling down and she is consumed with fire. In the Revelation, she's rebuilt. And you know who she's rebuilt by? By God. And do you know who her foundation stone is? Jesus. She's rebuilt at the cost of God's firstborn son. He really is everywhere. Well, all of Jericho was devoted, including the silver and gold. But check this out. The silver and gold are not destroyed by fire. Well, why? Because they aren't destroyed. They've already been through uh, the fire. And now get this. They are placed in the Lord's treasury. Their treasure. That's what we modern American Christians don't get. Listen to Leviticus 27, 28. Every harem, every devoted thing is most holy to God. That means every man, woman, and child, every donkey, every chicken in Jericho was most holy to God. Treasure to the commander of God's army. The Hebrews knew you, you sacrifice the best not the worst. The sacrifice is, is a gift. And just because something is destroyed by God, that doesn't mean he can't recreate it. I mean, he is the creator, right? This idea that God is into unending conscious torment just cannot be found in the Old Testament. And I think it is a gross distortion of the New Testament. Well, all, all Jericho was devoted. Gold and silver devoted. Even Rahab was devoted. Harem. And yet she wasn't burned. Perhaps she wasn't burned by the fire because she had already surrendered to the fire. Do you realize that if you die with Jesus, the second death won't hurt you? At the cross we die. And at Pentecost we're filled with fire. Rahab the harlot was now harem harem from the same root as uh, the Arab word harem <laughs> that means the place of the king's bride harem that old harlot Jerusalem is our Lord's bride and harem Maybe the temporal holocaust of this creation is just part of God's eternal plan to romance all people to himself and create his bride, his harem, people devoted to endless conscious love, the fire that is our God. Well, anyway, my point is, Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army, does not hate the people in the harem or the people on the other side of the wall. And yet, check it out, he's holding a sword. Why is he holding that sword? What's he gonna cut? What's he gonna tear down? What does he hate? Isn't it obvious? 
He hates the walls. Hates the walls. And so, at the seventh trumpet, on the eve of the seventh day, a Friday, sixth day after Palm Sunday, as the sky grows black and the earth shakes, the commander of God's army hangs, nailed to the tree in the ancient land of Eden, just outside the walls of Jerusalem, his bride. He lifts his head and he cries, it's done! It is finished! And the walls come tumbling down. A Roman soldier drops to his knees and says, Surely this man was the son of God. And the walls came tumbling down. What, exactly what walls? Ephesians 2.14. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The, 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 the dividing wall of hostility. It must be that curtain, that veil in the temple that ripped from the top to the bottom that separated God from people. Oh, and it must be that dividing wall in the temple course that separated the Gentiles uh, from the Jews. And check this out, in 70 AD, the walls of the temple really did come tumbling down as the walls of Jerusalem really did come tumbling down. And hey, check this out, there was a wall around Eden. Maybe it came tumbling down. You know, uh, the new Jerusalem is like a new Eden. And in the Revelation, it has, it has walls. But check this out, Revelation 21, 25. The gates are never shut by day, and there will be no night there. And the new Jerusalem is a bride. And that bride is the church, and you are the church. You see, your gates are to always be open. At a presbytery meeting five years ago, my wife heard the Lord say this, a church without walls, and I will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. She didn't know the scripture at the time, but God was quoting himself. That's Zechariah chapter two, verse five, walls. So, so what walls come down? How about this wall? I took this picture. That's the wall which separates Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, from Jerusalem. How about this wall? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. How about this wall? You know, it's kind of it's different when we build them. <laughs> this one separates the United States from Mexico. How about this wall? Big leaves. We call it clothing. And it's, it's a wall. Or how about the wall around your marriage. You know, in Scripture, God ordains walls for a time. He told folks to build those walls around Jerusalem. But think about it. All those walls guard something. What do they guard? A communion. They guard communion from that which would divide the communion. What if one day everything is communion? 
In heaven, we're, we're all married to the Lord, which I suspect means something like we're all married to each other, which I think would be, make us like, you know, one body, <laughs> one life, one blood flowing through all of our veins. And check this out, life is, life is communion. To divide a life is to kill it. To make a life is a communion. The commander of, of, of the Lord's army, he just hates the wall, he hates the wall. Why does he hate the wall? Do you know what's on the other side of the wall? His mom, literally, his mother. If you're a science fiction fan, this should really fuel your jets for a while. He's literally fighting for his life against the wall. For on the plains of Jericho, in the army of Joshua, there is a man named Salmon. Salmon means something like covering. And Salmon is the great, 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 super great grandfather of Jesus. And on the other side of the wall, in the city of fear, there's a woman named Rahab. And, and Rahab is the great, 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 super great grandmother of Jesus, the commander of the Lord's army. When the wall comes down, Salmon communes with Rahab, covers Rahab, and she gives birth to life, Christ's life. Do you know that Jerusalem above is your mother? That's what the Bible says. It's your mother. Because the walls came tumbling down. What walls? Well, how about this wall? I mean, your flesh. The prison of self-centeredness, pride, and fear. That, that prison which feels, you know, only its own pain, its own sorrow, its own pleasure. One day you'll actually hear the seventh trumpet and that wall will come tumbling down. If you don't know the commander of the Lord's army at that time, nothing could be more terrifying. But if you know him, nothing could be more thrilling. He's your husband. What, what, maybe it's every wall. Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All things reconciled. I think that means no walls, no sides, one life, one Lord, one baptism, and even now in this fallen world, reconciled to himself, he gives us the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. And we are to no longer battle with our old swords of steel, for the Lord has given us his sword of fire. That is his spirit, his very self. Many years ago in, in Poland, during the, during the Holocaust, told this is a true story. The Nazis went into one particular village. They rounded up all of the Jews, walked them out to the side of town, and they had them build a, a shallow grave, dig a shallow grave, and then they mowed them down with machine gun fire, drug the corpses into that grave, and covered it with a thin layer of 
of dirt. One 10-year-old boy survived. Late that night, covered in only his parents' blood, his neighbor's blood, and a thin layer of dirt, he clawed his way out of that grave. He made his way to the first house that he could find, knocked on the door, begged for mercy. But immediately, he hit a wall, a wall of fear. Closed door after closed door after closed door after closed door. The villagers all recognized him, the Jewish boy, marked for death. Jew from the other side. Well, finally, something inside this little boy seemed to prompt him to say something that Jewish boys don't often say. So at the next house, when a woman opened uh, the door, before she could close it, she, she heard him whimper. Don't you recognize me? I am the Jesus you say that you love. And she stood there, staring at him. And all at once, the walls came tumbling down. She lunged at him, swept him up off of his feet, held him to herself, and covered him with kisses. You'd tell the story later not in pride over some good that she'd done, but in gratitude over the life of this boy that was now her son. I am the Jesus you say you love. And it was. It was the Lord's, commander of the Lord's army standing in, in her door. He had come to tear down the wall. She didn't save him, he saved her. He saves us. What does he save us from? The adversary. Darkness, lies, death that divide light, truth, and life. It saves us from our sin. He saves us from our flesh, our self-centered prisons of pride and shame, too terrified to experience the ecstasy of communion. He saves us from the hell that is the inside of Jericho, a city locked down in fear. He even saves us, he even saves us from the wrath to come, for we are, for some reason, for some reason, we are Rahab, his bride. But you see, even the wrath to come is a work of salvation. It's God's wrath, the wrath of, of love, the wrath of Yeshua. It means God saves. He saves us from walls, dividing walls. And now he says, you are my body. You are my bride. We are one. You are my body. You are Joshua. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you may be thinking to yourself, dang, Peter, that was just way too much info. I can't process all that. I can't get it all in. And so if you could, could you just, you know, boil it down to something simple that I can go do? Tell me what I need to do. Just tell me what I need to do. Okay, that's easy. Take off your shoes. Just take them off. I'm serious, okay? Unless you have some kind of skin disease, or even if you have a skin disease, there's a new covenant. Take off your shoes, okay? And Kathleen, you can help Don with his shoes. Unless you have some medical condition or something that you can't take them off, this is what I want you to do. Take off your shoes. Why? Because you will be standing on holy ground. Why? 
Because the commander of the Lord's army is here. Why? Because he said that he would be here. He's here. And what does he have to say to us? Well, I think he has something like this to say to us. He says, I am the commander of the Lord's army. Now I have come. I am the word spoken into the void that is creation. Now I have come. I am king of kings and lord of lords. Now I have come. And this is my body. And this cup is the covenant in my blood. Eat, drink, worship. And then, go to war against the darkness, against the lies, against the death, against the adversary, against the walls that imprison my people, my people whom I love. I think that's what he says. And he invites you then to come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The dark cups are wine, the, the light cups are, are juice. After you've dipped your bread in the cup and you've partaken in communion, members of our prayer team will be in either corner. So if you'd like prayer, you can ask them to pray with you. Uh, but come to the table, and as you come to the table, okay, and, and you, you remember this, you're coming to holy ground. I mean, if you believe scripture, you are. And so it makes sense to me that you'd look at him and worship. In Jesus' name, believe. Amen. So close your eyes. You realize that you are a city According to scripture, you're like a, a walled city. And inside the city is a temple. And in the temple is a sanctuary. In the sanctuary is a throne. Now I want you to look outside of the city walls. Standing on the plain of Jericho as the com com commander of the of the Lord's army. 
Oh, I tell you, when, when I get a, a glimpse of him sometimes, when I, when I just get a glimpse, I'm just filled with this outrageous, uh, well, this longing, this thrill, and then this terror, this terror, because I know that if he enters all the walls, all the walls will come crumbling down, and I will no longer be able to hide. Well, you know, he's good. And so I need to say this, because some of you have been really wounded by imposters. He's not a rapist. He's the great bridegroom. He won't rape you. But he longs for your walls to come tumbling down. I mean, he won't storm the sanctuary and and steal the throne. He romances the stone. However, he will use the situations of this world to crumble those walls. You see, we're all going to get cancer, get hit by a bus or something, and the walls will come crumbling down. But do you see, um, he didn't come to Jericho because he hated those people. He came to Jericho because he loved those people. And he loves you. But it's not a cheap love. It's not an easy love. In other words, he desires complete and total communion because you're his bride. And he longs to bear the fruit that is life. So right now, just in your heart, whether you've said it one time, a million times, or no times, just say this, Lord Jesus, I invite you to come in and sit on your throne. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen. Now before you go, let me just say real quickly, I really did order a hundred of these. And uh, if you want one, you can just come down front here and, and grab one. But let me just tell you, it's easy to think, oh, God loves everybody, yay, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, like go around kissing people and stuff like that, and, and think it'll be easy. But I'm just warning you. Um, you, know, you know, we wonder. I mean, Palm Sunday is this day of incredible irony, because we all wave palm branches and say, yay, Jesus is the king and everything. Six days later, they kill him. Why? Well, you search the scriptures, you read very closely. And I think you'll see that it's because when he rode into Jerusalem, this bumper sticker was on his ass. (laughs) Okay. And and by that I mean his donkey, of course. And uh, you see, they just didn't take too kindly to that. And yet that's our battle against, against the walls. And one last thing before you go. I really like VeggieTales, okay? So, uh, you know, watch VeggieTales. But just don't let your Bible study end with VeggieTales. When the Bible gets scary, don't shut it. Don't close it. The whole thing is true. Keep reading. Because Jesus is good. God is good. And he's been revealed to us in Christ Jesus. So believe the gospel and live. And one other thing. Someone left their glasses um, in the parking lot. So if these are your glasses, you can come get them. Also, members of the prayer team will be down front. We'll see you next week for Easter. Hopefully, you can invite someone, bring them along. Have a great week, okay?